It's good to be back with you. Uh, very much enjoyed my uh, first time here and was happy that Elisha thought that it would be safe to get me back. Oh, um, I have to confess that Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Um, I, I honestly think that that has a lot to do with Charles Dickens, uh, more so than anything else. Uh, when I was uh, younger, um, I became a big fan of Dickens, uh, particularly his short story, The Christmas Carol, and, and I read that, I think, just about every year, and also saw multiple kind of iterations of it on film, and it just instilled this sense of magic in me. Um, even after you know, things sort of shifted for me, the way I viewed Christmas you know, early on in my childhood, uh, Dickens was still just a source of uh, just this great story with uh, just massive repercussions seemingly in, in this guy's life that uh, I just had never you know, grasped. And of course, the vision of this, this other world sort of inserting itself into ours. My very favorite ghost of, uh, of Dickens is uh, the ghost of Christmas present. Um, growing up, um, the way that I grew up, it was um, a very, I, I, would, I don't think my parents, my parents weren't overtly legalistic, but growing up in Alabama, in the Deep South, in the Bible Belt, kind of on the buckle of the Bible Belt, uh, it, it, you almost couldn't get away from legalism. And, um, and so to, to meet up with the ghost of Christmas presents, uh, a present, uh, that this, this ghost that was just full of joy and uh, doing things that I was uh, you know, told that I, I shouldn't do. And, and yet he didn't seem to be abusing anything. It seemed to be just a, a sense of great joy and pleasure for him. It was always fascinating. And my most unfavorite ghost was the ghost of Christmas future, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Because he just scared the living daylights out of me as a child. It's just, um, almost like the, I still can't watch The Wizard of Oz uh, because I watched it a bit too early. And The Wicked Witch, who now you, know, you look at, it, it's, uh, you know, the special effects are just hilarious. But, but it doesn't matter to me. It was that traumatizing at four or five years old uh, to watch The Wicked Witch. It's the same kind of way that the ghost of Christmas yet to come was this terrifying you know, sort of entity for me. Uh, because again, it was... It was something that came into the world from outside of our world. Automatically, we understand that we can't control that. Uh, even as a, a child, you understand that. Christmas is all about that. Dickens nailed that astounding mystery that is what Christians have called the incarnation for our entire existence. The idea that God would become flesh is nowhere in no other religion. You know the religion that says that God looks down and realizes very early on that he himself must save. And the only way is to go into the story. It's, um, Dorothy Sayers was a prominent thinker and writer. She was um, one of C.S. Lewis's good friends, as well as colleagues at Oxford. She was the very first female to ever be hired as a professor at Oxford. Um, she wrote a series of stories uh, the, uh, uh, that were mysteries 
they were, you know, crime books. They were fantastic. And her, her uh, chief protagonist was Lord Pemberley. And, and he was um, almost like Sherlock Holmes type character. If you've ever read Conan Doyle's book, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and Holmes is completely, utterly sort of a wreck. He's a heroin addict. He's, he's got all kinds of real issues. And same thing with Lord Wimberley, not Pemberley. And she began obsessing almost over this character, realizing that the way that she had structured him and that he's, all of his personal problems and everything were just going to destroy him at some point. And so all of a sudden, in the middle of the series, this woman appears. And she tames Lord Wimberley. And she begins to draw him back to himself and rescue him. Interestingly enough, she was sort of a rather homely lady, according to the, the writer. All accounts of Dorothy Sayers, she was as well. She was exceptionally brilliant. Sayers was as well. She was the very first woman to ever be hired at Oxford. Sayers was as well. She was a professor of English literature. Sayers was as well. Do you see what she did? She wrote herself into the story to save the character. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is God writing himself into the story to rescue us, sinners. That's what this text is today. First Timothy chapter 1. I'm just concentrating on verse 15. When we talk about God writing himself into our story, there is no more explicit text than this one that Paul has written to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Three things we're going to focus on today. We can focus on a lot more, but we only got a limited amount of time. First thing is Christ Jesus. Christ came into the world. The idea that um, uh, Christmas relies upon the who of Christmas is really significant. If, in fact, who Jesus is isn't Jesus, it doesn't really count. It's always fascinating to me. I'll, I'll see these. Um, I've, always been, I've always been fascinated by film adaptations of Christian stories. Primarily because, and I'll be honest with you, primarily because they're always just so bad. This is so bad. Uh, I mean, how many of you, uh, I, I can tell that there, there's quite a few of you that might you know, be around my age. You remember the greatest story ever told in the 1970s? <laughs> is that the worst? It was just uh, terrible. You know, Jesus ends up like this effeminate Jewish hippie, yeah, kind of, you know, just wanting peace on, on earth and things like that. It's like, I don't think, I, I remember my dad looking at me and saying, yeah, I, don't, I don't think that this is, exactly the way Jesus was, boys. And he's telling my brothers and I, and we were like, whew, well, that's good. We, we really didn't know what to do with him, you know? It was just so strange. And then, of course, you've got Monty Python's Life of Brian, 
but one of the most hilarious things that I've ever seen in my life, uh, fairly irreverent, mocking not so much the biblical story, but the Church of England. And you've got a brand new um, a movie coming out, The Book of Clarence. And, and the whole idea in all of these, interestingly, is they portray Jesus as this sort of revolutionary, making a decision in order to rescue humanity sort of from itself, almost like, you know, providing a new philosophy. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about God writing himself into the story. The reason that Jesus' death on the cross mattered was not because it was singular. Rome killed people like that all the time. The reason that Jesus' death mattered was because of who he was. God Almighty in the flesh, absorbing the wrath of God against humanity in this one singular act. That crucifixion was radically different than every crucifixion ever in Rome because of who Jesus was. Because of who Jesus was, Christmas is different. This is not just simply a, a time for family and you know, chestnuts roasting on the open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose, but really never down in San Diego, right? And so all, everything that we sing about, everything we talk about with regard to Christmas is all about warmth and comfort and family and stuff like that. That's not this. This is God Almighty come to earth to write himself into a story to rescue, rescue people. This is God coming to earth knowing, knowingly, handing himself over to those. Christ, he came into the world, but his, world, his own received him not. They did not. Why? Because men loved the darkness. That's, the, that's a prescription. We talk about Christmas as this warmth, but because of who Jesus is, Christmas was a rescue mission. He can't be just simply substituted. The, the theme in Monty Python's Life of Brian. He can't be substituted. He can't be substituted. Again, the, the, the theme of this new movie, The Book of Clarence. There is no way to substitute. There is no way to utilize him as a, a sort of a human model. Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were created were created by him, for him. And this God wraps himself in human flesh to come into the world. The who of Christmas really matters. This is the point of time when I think when I was younger, probably 30 years ago, when I started working in churches, that I would launch into a visceral attack on commercialism. I realized, I think several years back, reading American history, that commercialism really wasn't the problem. Commercialism is just where you go when there's nothing else valuable in Christmas. I buy my kids stuff. I'm waiting with bated breath for Christmas this year because all my grandkids will be in the house. Can't wait. Ask any grandparent. You don't even have to bring me gifts. Just show up. I'll make you food. Crawl down on the floor and roll around and play with you. My grandkids are still 
young enough to wear wrestling? Is it creepy? Yeah, you know, with, you know, with a guy like me? You know what I'm talking about. Every grandparent in here knows what I'm talking about. <clears throat> it's great. But here's the problem. If I don't have anything more valuable than them, right, Christmas, Christmas doesn't really mean as much. Because the fact of the matter is them, like me, we have a shelf limit. A shelf life that not terribly long oftentimes. It must be something deeper. It must be something better. It's all found in the who of Christmas. You, you become simply commercialized when the who of Christmas doesn't matter. If you find yourself this year struggling with the beauty of Christmas, it's, it's not anybody else's fault but yours. You have somehow or another lost your grasp on the who of Christmas. Reteach yourself about Jesus. Open the Gospel of John, fantastic little gospel, to read through. Don't just limit yourself to the Christmas text. Read it all. It's all one big story. God, come to earth in flesh to rescue his characters. The who of Christmas really matters. But also, the what of Christmas matters. He came into the world. Christmas is about what Jesus did. He came into the world. This comment, the world, is an interesting, um, interesting idea. You really find the meaning of this Greek word fleshed out best in the Gospel of John. The idea, in fact, you can, you can say it like this. Um, um, just repeat after me. Uh, in the New Testament, the world is a bad place, not a big place. It's a bad place, not a big place. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, so, so the idea of the world is not the globe. It's not, for example, for God so loved the world, it's not for God so loved the globe and every single person on the globe and every single person throughout time and space in the same exact way. If you read the Bible, you obviously know that's not the case. You just go to places like Exodus 19 where God looks at Israel and says, the entire earth is mine, but you are my treasured possession. That does not sound at all like he treats everybody the same. So you get that. The beauty of the gospel is, of course, the love of God bursts outside of the bounds of the temple, outside of the bounds of Israel, and explodes all over the world. Now, now he's Israelitizing people who don't have any Israelite blood in them, like me. He came into the world the world, you can jot this down perhaps, is a tragic, godless system. It's a tragic, godless system. That's how the world is understood most of the time in the, in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, there are neutral occurrences. He came into the world. There are negative occurrences, but there are no overtly positive occurrences of the word of the world because it's a tragic, godless system. For example, Christ saves his disciples and brings them out of the world. Or 1 John chapter 3, right? 
do not love the world. Wow, that's a weird, weird verse to use like for Mission Sunday, right? It's, it's a strange idea. That's not what it's saying though, right? You inherently know that. It's a tragic, godless system. And this is the thing that God loved so much that he gave his son. Christ comes into the world willingly, lovingly, into a tragic, godless system. Again, one of the, one of the things I, I, when I have, I have these things at the university uh, during my classes, um, I call them Starbucks gazing. Kind of a play on stargazing. And, um, but, I know, uh, but Starbucks gazing to give everyone permission to bring coffee and pastries into the classroom. And, and so, and it's just a free-for-all. Ask me any question you want. I, I kind of, I know that most people, my, my poor wife, she would never be able to do that. My wife, if she makes a joke, it's on paper. If she, if she, she laughs, she's put it like in parentheses, giggle, here. And so, I mean, she's like, everything is planned. And she goes, where are your notes? I was like, I don't know. I get up on a stage and go, just ask me whatever you want. And, and, and uh, I just thrive in places like that. And, and the more hostile the environment, the more I thrive, tend to be. I feel really comfortable. I, I was that kid when I was in college. I was you know, an atheist and hostile, yelled at preachers when they came on campus, things like that. I love those kids. So we have these questions. And they ask me, how do you know you're right? You know, that, that, you know, that kind of conversation stopper. How do you know you're right? I don't know. I say, I, I, I don't, if, you, if you're asking me for proof, I, I don't, no, I'm not sure I could give you proof the way that you're asking. So, but I can tell you, there are some aspects of Christianity that are radically unique. And this is one of them. In fact, this is the big one. Christ Jesus came into the world. In every other religion that I know of, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident with the millions of religions that there are in the world, I don't know a great deal of them. But with every single religion I know of, it's just remarkable to me that they all follow the same pattern. The deity stands at a distance from the world, from the creation, and beckons them to them, him or them or her or whatever. It calls them to them. Do better, try harder, commit more, be more humanitarian, be more rigidly moralistic, be more whatever the whatever the prize is. If you're in if you're in India, uh, for example, uh, with uh, certain religions, a Sikh religion, for example, it's 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 humanitarianism is is driven. If you're in, um, in if you're in uh, Jordan or or in Afghanistan or something like that, uh, places like that, then then it's it, there's a rigid morality, a rigid moralism that goes with it. But the gods are still doing the same thing. Work harder at that. Come to me. Come to me. Try harder. Try harder. Try harder. I don't know of any other religion that says that God looks down and writes himself into the story, driven by his own profound affection. Not even because that we're even worth it. That's extraordinary. If you were worth it, then you would have something to hold over this deity's head. Of course you'll come for me because I'm worth it. But the Bible is explicit that we're not 
even worth this kind of affection. And yet this God, driven by his great heart, full of affection for a godless, tragic system that doesn't even acknowledge him. It's one of the most damning indictments of humanity is in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous. Verse 18, no one fears God. Everyone looks at him and it results in a big, meh, no big deal. We can make one of those. We can make multiple ones of those. This is Christ Jesus who came into the world. The other thing about this that I think is important for us to know, particularly now in the United States, where political conflation of, of Christianity is so prevalent, is Christ Jesus came into the world. You get that, right? Just like Dickens, right? Something from outside of the world came into the world. Here's what you cannot have. You cannot have Jesus simply being derived from some aspect of the world. Jesus cannot be firmly or derived from the Republican Party, derived from the Democratic Party, Libertarian Party, derived from America, derived from being white, being black, being Latino, being anything else that you can think of. It's got to be Christ Jesus came into the world. No derivations. My daughter goes to a Christian school and was dropping her off at a, at a party um, that uh, one of her, was happening at one of her friend's house. And I passed, on the, on the way there, I, I passed a, a yard with a big sign in it. It was actually really quite large. And it said, Jesus for president in 2024. I was like, I really hope that that's some guy named Jesus, and I just don't know who that is. <laughs> because petitioning the king of time and space to be the president of an empire that's not even 300 years old yet feels like a demotion. Does not feel like that's, uh, you know, kind of on the trajectory up. You need to be really, really sure this Christmas that the Jesus that you're talking about is the one that came into the world. Please don't, don't, don't pass Jesus all the way up with your Jesus of your own making as he's descending to the world to rescue Follow him there. Not only is it what he did, but what he did for us. Third point, Christ Jesus, the who of Christmas, came into the world, the what of Christmas, but came into the world to save sinners. And when I was, when I was younger, I'd, this, this was white noise for me. I don't know about you. But this idea, Jesus came to save, Jesus came to save. Jesus, I mean, I grew up in Alabama. I heard this every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group. 
the whole nine yards. This drum got banged all the time. And it was just white noise for me. It's not because I heard it too much. I remember talking with um, a group of people one time, just friends of ours here in California, and they were, (laughs) you know, you have those conversations, you walk away from them going, why would anybody think stuff like that? I wonder, and and, uh, that they were like, they were like wondering, hey, is it really healthy to, you know, take your kids to church? I mean, you know, from the beginning and on up, and they called them lifers. I was like, you know what you, you know what you call people to go to prison? Uh, It's like, it's that terrible illustration for your children, a metaphor for them going to church. And they're like, yeah, but if they they go to church all the time, it just gets old for them. Unless, I mean, unless they're saved, right? My, my problem, I told him, I said, my problem, but the reason that Jesus saved sinners was just white noise to me is because it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't care. I didn't believe that I was really a sinner. I mean, I really didn't. I've, I've, got, I've got way more self-esteem than any two people probably need. Remember my father, my father <laughs> used to write, on my lunch bag. So, so for all of you little kids, uh, when when I went to school, um, we would we would take our lunch. I, and I was I'm a, I was from a really poor area, uh, kind of a depressed, you know, lower economic area in in, in the country. So we uh, I took my my lunch bag. <clears throat> lunch bag had to have your name on it. You walked in, you put it in a slot, and then the teacher would call your name. <laughs> and so my <coughs> my dad would write Jeff the Jerk. Uh, my lunch bag. And my teacher, young, idealistic, you know, calls my dad in for a meeting. She wants me there too. I begged. I was like, no, no, I don't want to be here. She, she got me to come in there too. And so she held the bag up. She goes, Mr. Mr. Mooney, I believe that, you know, this kind of thing could really wound Jeff's sense of self. My dad, who was, who was no philosopher by his trusty imagination, but who really enjoyed these moments. He, he looked at her and said, sweetheart, I'm doing you a favor. He said, if you, ever, if you ever spent five minutes talking to this kid, you'd realize he's got way more self-esteem than any five of your other students have. I'm just trying to chop him down so you can actually handle him. And so that was me. And I believe that I kind of, you know, because the church I was going to, it was certainly filled with good-intentioned people and things like that, but, man, there was a strong sense of moralism that ran through the church. And so because of that, I, I, I jumped through all the moral hoops. You know, I, um, I, I didn't use tobacco or alcohol. I you know, stayed off drugs. Uh, stayed, you know, sexually pure, you know, the, the whole thing hard. So that meant something. That meant something. And from the very beginning, I remember him saying, God loves you. He's your, you know, he's, he's, he, you know you're his king. You're, you're his little prince. I remember, you know, um, you know, I've seen those little coloring pages. There was no reason at all for me to believe that a, a passage like John 3, verse 36 those who believe in the Son have life, but those who do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God 
still abides on you. There was no reason for me to believe that was to me. I jumped through all the hoops. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, it is tempting to believe, not for anything that you lack, but it's tempting for you to believe that somehow that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a guy like me talking to someone like you, trying to get you to exchange your moral commitments and let me give you my moral commitments. That's not it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that God saw both you and I. He knew that you and I would never turn from sin because sin is a self-empowering concept. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? How self-empowering it is? Look at, what, what, look at what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy, trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what, that's what he says. What kind of life did Paul live prior to becoming a Christian? Profoundly religious. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't some meth addict on, on Hollywood and Vine. This guy was profoundly moral, deeply moral, deeply committed to moral aspects of Judaism, deeply and profoundly given over to the scriptures of Judaism. And according to him, the foremost sinner. So yeah, we can trade moral commitments if you want, but that's not gonna help you. See, it's like Dickens, something outside of time and space has to come into your heart. It has to arrest you. It has to call your affections underneath its power. Everything else fixes itself in one way or another after that. I mean, don't get me wrong, you still have to have guidance, shaping, even rebuke sometimes, correction at times. But the distinction between someone who has repented of their sin is not that they don't anymore have sin. They're the ones now that take sides with being corrected sides with their savior. Those who've never repented always take sides with their sin. There's always a reason. There's always a justification for why I should get to do this, keep this, whatever. But for those who are saved, there is never a justification in their mind. They long to cling to the savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to rescue Sinners. A sinner in the scriptures is someone whose life is given over to themselves. That's what it is. And that could be profoundly immoral, illicit behavior. And that could be, like you have in the Corinthians, uh, that could be profoundly moral, superior behavior. But both have to repent. Both have to turn away from hoping in either and throw all of their hopes onto the singular individual who came into the world to rescue them from themselves, Jesus. 
Paul goes on. He said, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, Paul says this. Now, frankly, I don't know if he's the worst sinner or not, but in Paul's mind, he definitely is. In the New Testament, religion is the preeminent sin. Not homosexuality, not, not uh, you, know, some, uh, you know, other illicit forms of heterosexual immorality. It's religion. And this is why. All other sins, all of the sins might have the assumptions of religion, but religion has this assumption. God is reachable. I can bring him to me if I need to. I can make it to him. I can do whatever I need to do, cross whatever T's I need to cross, dot whatever I's I need to cross, and I can make myself appealing to him. I can provide myself to him as acceptable. That is at the very heart, a complete affront to Christianity. Christianity says none of that is true. See, all of the religions diagnose the problem very differently. They diagnose the problem. The humanity certainly has a problem. But that problem can be remedied by being better humans. By creating and crafting yourself into a better way. But Christianity says, oh, that's not the problem. The problem is at the very heart you have no will to do this. You have no capacity to do this. The problem is, is that this deity, the only God, is so far above you that there is no way you can climb high enough. I remember when I became convinced of my own sin. I was in New York. I was, reading, I was just reading the Bible by myself. And... I just remember thinking for the very first time, oh, I'm, I am so done. I'd never, I, I had always been, you know, when I was a younger kid and I was really very sensitive to religion and church and things like that, I, was, I really tried to be a great church kid and, and I, I, was, I was always sensitive about what I did, so my behavior and things like that, but I never thought about how deep it went. I would have thought that maybe I'd need to be rejuvenated from my behavior or some moral reformation kind of you know, going on. But to be rescued from me was to be rescued in the very heart of me. And I remember there in New York thinking, if I was perfect from this moment forward, which I had literally no precedent to believe that that was even possible, Everything from this moment backwards screams for my condemnation. There was no doubt in my mind that I was condemned and I had no argument. I wasn't talking to anybody, I was just reading. God and his gracious spirit, I'm quite confident, revealed that to me. And the reason I know he revealed it to me is because simultaneously, he also revealed that he wasn't showing that to me to condemn me. 
He was showing that to me to save me. Paul believes, like I think most Christians do, that his sin is horrible. And that his salvation should go as a testimony to the goodness and the patience of God. It's almost like he just loses his grip on the conversation initially and just breaks into praise in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. The who of Christmas, Christ Jesus, came into the world, the what of Christmas, came into the world to save sinners. The what of Christmas for you and for me. A couple of points of application. First of all, if you would have to sit there and think, like if you're a dad or a mom, you have to sit there and think, I don't think our Christmas at home is really celebrates this at the end of the day. You can decide what you want to do, but I'd be careful about all of a sudden throwing in a bunch of new rituals in for the kids. If you haven't done them since January the 1st of 2023. I think I would decide today that tomorrow was the beginning of a brand new take on Christmas. That to think of Christmas is to, is to think of Christmas throughout the year. Well, a great, of course, results of Dickens' story is Scrooge became a better man, a better boss than the good old city had ever known. And it was true that they said that he kept Christmas in his heart all year round. So I think Paul would say, oh yeah, oh that's a Christian. Someone who would keep the reality that Christ Jesus, God Almighty, has come in the flesh to save sinners. And that magic, the magical essence of that, the powerful, almost electric magic of that type of love being enacted stays in your heart year round. That's really knowing Christmas. When you introduce the new rituals into Christmas, it doesn't feel like you're just trying to make up for something. I remember um, even though my family was poor, my dad was convinced that we, that there were a lot of people more poor than us. And so my brother and I, we grew up going into inner city Birmingham to Jimmy Hale Mission. I'll never forget it. And feeding homeless people. My dad, all the homeless people in the area of my dad's business knew him. It was really funny. There were all, all kind of really great stories from my dad dealing with homeless people. But they knew him and loved him because he, he fed them all the time. He gave them work when they actually wanted to work. He tried to help them out with those who had mental illness. And I remember asking him one time, 
we got to the mission one time and it was loaded with people. There were like church buses outside and there were people inside. And I was like, hi, um, I've never seen these people here before. And dad's like, the beginning of Dickens' story, my dad was the guy that I knew who kept Christmas in his, in his heart all year round. So that when we did things like that, it just felt like this is what our family did. You want to craft the DNA in your family that at the very heart of it is that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. It'll rescue your kids from things like pretentiousness or the desperate need for affirmation from others. Man, if you can rescue your kids from that, that's amazing. And you, don't get me wrong, you can do that by just being there for them. That's possible. But if you give them something that is supremely valuable, that even when you're not there and you won't be one day, that they can cling to this, this is it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, I'm the foremost. Secondly, I love the fact that your shirts and things like that, it seems to be in your DNA to want to evangelize. But I don't know you, right? So I don't know if you do it or not, or if it's just a cool shirt. If everyone that you've been praying for this week to be saved was saved right now, how many people would that be? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. One of the best things I think you can begin doing is just praying. Just praying. People are saved because you pray for them. Christianity is not something you can just talk somebody into. I can win the argument. You want to have an argument with me? I can win the argument. I can win that argument every time just about. I've, only, I've not bumped into too many people that can outdo me on, those, on, that, on that platform. Just, just a gift and a bit of a curse at times. Because when you can win the argument each time, you like to reduce everything down to the argument. Here's the problem. This isn't an argument. This is something coming out of time and space into your heart. I truly believe that my grandmother was a far better evangelist than me not because she knew any of the arguments, she didn't, but because she prayed diligently for people, for their hearts to be open, their eyes to be open to the beauty of the Savior. That's a life well spent, so well spent. Do you know how many people are gonna remember me being them in arguments in coffee shops? Zero. And even if they do remember it, I'll be that guy. You remember that guy? He was cocky. He thought he won, but he didn't. And I mean, that, 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 that was, that's how I'll be remembered. Do you know how people remember my grandmother? Edna prayed for me, and she prayed for me. That's how I remember her. She prayed for me. Long prayers, longing for God to show his mercy, to show his patience. Those are great, those are great moments. That's one. Secondly, learn the gospel. Learn the gospel. Have about a 10-minute kind of thing that you can unpack. Have about a 30-second to two-minute kind of thing you can unpack. Just determine, right? Sometimes in, in, the, in the heat of a conversation, 
I'll, I, with a student, particularly with ones that's not a Christian, I'll realize I've got about a 30-second window. They're not really interested in me just unpacking the biblical story. So I've got about a 30-second presentation that I can just pop. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared to do that. I'm sure Elisha would, would just have a heart attack out of joy. If he's anything like his brother, it would all be quite animated, wanting to teach you the gospel. He would love it. The fact of the matter, he probably does that in sermon after sermon. Listen to him. Take good notes. Formulate the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Those four elements, that's the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. And then make sure that you're able to speak it clearly. Don't care about whether or not you think you've won. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It just matters that you speak it, right? You let a lion out of a cage. You don't qualify the lion. You just open it up and let it go. Lion does what lions do. And then maybe lastly is preach it to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself. Let it become part of your DNA. It'll make you happy. If you struggle with depression, it might not take away your depression, but what it'll do is it'll provide you a brand new place to orient your mind. The scary thing about depression, terrifying thing about depression, is that it locks you into orienting the world around you. And that's like the last person you want to be the center of your world. And yet you can't get away from it. The gospel provides a reorientation. For those of you who might struggle with self-righteousness, sense of strong morality, the gospel will tame you. It'll cause you to repent over and over and over again. And to begin to look at people who are completely unlike you with a sense of patience, a sense of longing, not for their moral reformation so they're on your side, but for their rescue. For those of you who could stand a bit of legalism in your life, you're just a bit too fast and loose with the rules. It's what I bump into with college kids a lot. Listen to the gospel. Let the gospel shape you. If someone does this for you and their values don't include the thing you want to do, are you really going to do it? Someone who loves you like that, someone who has captured you, who's rescued you in a way that no one else can rescue you, are you really going to just thumb your nose at their values, their heart, their ambitions? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The who of Christmas, the what of Christmas, the what of Christmas for you. I pray that this Christmas would be magical for you. Honestly, it's my favorite aspect of Christmas. It's just that magical element. Started for me by Dickens, but flowered for me in the gospel. A gospel that I find 
and writers like Dickens at times. I hope the gospel is magical. I hope you live with a sense of mystery and power of the gospel throughout the year. Much like Dickens' protagonists. Great joy.